today on Not Cleared, we talked to Frank Gaffney, who's the founder of the Center for Security Policy, and we discussed nuclear deterrence and, more specifically, how the United States nuclear arsenal stacks up against the likes of Russia and China. And spoiler alert, the U.S. arsenal is not nearly as capable as many Americans would like to believe. What was your job at the Pentagon during the Reagan administration? It had a couple of different titles. Uh, the one that I wound up with at the end was Deputy Assistant Secretary of Defense for Nuclear Forces and Arms Control Policy. Um, during the last seven months of that stint, it was a four and a half year or so uh, service all over, all, all together. And um, the last seven months, I acted as an Assistant Secretary of Defense for international security policy. So what does that mean? What were you working on primarily? Um, well, in the former uh, role, I was working a lot on uh, both the modernization of our nuclear forces and the policies that should guide what we did in that regard, um, the importance of continuing to do nuclear testing mm -hmm. to the viability of our deterrent, um, a lot of work on arms control uh, issues, uh, including sort of the two um, companion issues of deploying intermediate range nuclear forces to Europe, which I started doing as soon as I got to the Pentagon. Uh, it's sort of the denouement of that whole uh, project and the subsequent efforts to negotiate away uh, those forces, um, as well as strategic arms control and uh, missile defense policy. Was that something that you were interested before entering that position, or was that something that you developed more of a passion for once you saw how good or not good our nuclear arsenal was? Yeah, I worked um, in a number of capacities leading up to my time at the Pentagon that, that kind of gave me on-the-job training. Um, the first was with Senator Scoop Jackson, Henry Scoop Jackson, who was... Um, very much uh, one of the experts in the Senate and the Congress as a whole on nuclear issues. So I'd kind of gone to school at his knee, if you will, about it, working with him in connection with his uh, Senate Armed Services Committee responsibilities. And then I migrated over to the professional staff of the Senate Armed Services Committee and wound up working on um, the subcommittee on strategic forces that uh, again, had been his particular uh, focus of effort. So I had, um, you know, probably, I guess, five or six years of experience on the policy side, as well as the legislative side, the budget side, uh, and uh, was able to move fairly seamlessly into the role at the Pentagon when it came open. Well, let's break it down really simply. What is nuclear deterrence? Um, simply put, nuclear deterrence is trying to prevent nuclear war. We have adversaries who not only have the capability of waging nuclear war, but have doctrines saying they will do it under different circumstances. And one has to say what they declare publicly about the circumstances under which they would engage in nuclear war may or may not align with what they would actually do. But Suffice it to say that, in particular, in the past 10 years, arguably longer, both the Russians and the Chinese 
and a variety of other nations uh, at a lower scale have taken very seriously the business of nuclear war fighting. Mm -hmm. And our purpose has to be to deter them from thinking that's a good idea to actually do. How do we deter them? I think the Reagan formula of peace through strength is the one tried and true formula for doing that. Uh, It's a subjective thing, inevitably, but I personally believe erring on the side of caution, Mm -hmm. uh, having uh, more capability, more robust capability, uh, more survivable capability, um, and credible capability, most especially, to wage a punitive war against any potential adversary is the necessary way to try to prevent them from thinking they could engage in such a horrific act of unprecedented destructive potential against our people and country. So it's similar to someone using a gun to stop a home invasion or something like that. For people that I, I guess at a, at a very basic level, the yeah. idea is you want potential home invaders to know you are armed. You don't want to bring a knife to a gunfight. Go to somebody else's house. Yeah, right. This is this is not a place you want to mess with. It's a hard target, and I think that's uh, true at the individual homeowners level with bullies and thugs in your neighborhood and it's true at the national and international level as well how does our deterrent apply to our allies historically we have said to our allies you don't need nuclear weapons with the exception of the french and the brits the israelis almost really um because we've got your back Uh, We were most especially concerned about the Germans and the Koreans and the Japanese having nuclear capabilities uh, some time ago. Um, Now Japan having nukes wouldn't be that bad. (laughs) Well, I've I've thought for some time that uh, the confidence that they can have that they can safely forego having their own nuclear deterrent depends a lot on ours. Mm -hmm. And if ours ceases to be credible, if ours uh, may not deter attacks against us, let alone against them, uh, they probably are well advised to look to their own defenses, as the Israelis have historically done, and the Brits and the French in the case of uh, their nuclear deterrent forces. Um, And when we're talking about deterrent, we just mean our weapons, basically, the state of our nuclear weapons. We talk about deterrence mostly in the abstract. Right. I think but the state of our nuclear be, deterrent. To be clear, deterrence is a multifaceted calculation. Mm-hmm. As I say, it's, it's subjective, but it's obviously partly a function of the confidence that an adversary can have that you have weaponry, meaning both the nuclear warheads and the delivery systems. Which would be missiles, airplanes. And submarine-based missiles, yes. That's the nuclear triad, as it's called. But those all will work in a very difficult set of circumstances in a timely way and 
with devastating effectiveness. I happen to think that we need to broaden the lens a little bit more because uh, the reliability, uh, the safety, to say nothing of the effectiveness of our nuclear forces depends in part upon an infrastructure mm -hmm. that sustains them and that hopefully keeps them up to date and uh, ensures that if there are any defects that might prompt an adversary to think, well, they're not going to be effective deterrents against us or we can neutralize them through one means or another, well, then deterrence would suffer. So right. I think you need to think about it as a nuclear enterprise, really, in which the weapons are, of course, the most obvious and important part. But that infrastructure is also critically important and, and almost always really neglected is the necessity of having command and control of those forces that is also credible, uh, that is also robust, that is also survivable against what adversaries might try to do to essentially decapitate your forces and thereby men make them uh, unusable. So it's not just having 5,000 nukes in some warehouse somewhere, it's being able to deploy them safely and effectively. There's a lot more it's, that goes into nuclear deterrence than just the number itself. Yeah, I personally think numbers of nuclear weapons in warehouses at least for us, um, is not something that should be factored into the equation. Right. Uh, most of them are ancient. Uh, their readiness to be deployed um, may be minimal. Um, and more to the point, uh, as Donald Rumsfeld famously said, you go to war with the army you have. And it's basically, if you're talking about deterrence, it's the the weapons that are available to be delivered that matter and how ready they are, how credible they are, how reliable they are, that counts, not what you conceivably nice. could do Stock something with right. over time with enough warning and probably an awful lot of upgrading. To that point, can you explain the difference between first and second strike capabilities or just what those are? Sure. Um, Mark Twain had an expression that's the difference between lightning and lightning bugs. <laughs> um, a first strike, obviously, is the use preemptively of nuclear weapons, the purpose of which almost certainly would be not only to do a lot of devastating harm, but to try to prevent an adversary from being able to mount a credible second strike that would be so punitive as to prompt you to say, well, it's not worth doing a first strike. And again, these are always uh, subjective uh, and exotic, in many cases, calculations. What is the probability that your warheads would take out a target set uh, and do so so successfully, so reliably, so... Um, certainly that you would essentially be able to get away with it and not suffer retaliation. This is one of the reasons why we have historically had a triad because the theory has been that the competing capabilities, strengths and weaknesses of the various elements, the land-based missile force, ICBMs, they're called intercontinental ballistic missiles, 
the submarine-launched ballistic missiles, called SLBMs for short, and the bomber-delivered weapons um, that are currently delivered by B-52s and B-2 bombers, um, or deliverable, I should say, uh, have, you know, certain attributes that offset the strengths and weaknesses of the other legs, as they're mm -hmm. called, of the triad. So when you want to have uh, the capability to survive a first strike, you want to have forces that the enemy cannot calculate, can reliably be so decidedly suppressed as to render your second strike inoperable. So if you were, so let's say Moscow was going, let's say Russia decided to launch a nuclear attack against us, they would have to be sure that they took out our submarines, which are theoretically stealth, no one knows where they are for deployments of six to nine months, I think, our, um, our bombers and our ICBMs. Or we could retaliate and destroy their, their entire country. So they'd have to be really sure that we wouldn't retaliate. That's the theory. Um, they, they would have to um, anticipate everything that we might do that would affect their calculations of the certain degradation of our various legs of the triad. So we have several hundred intercontinental ballistic missile silos. Mm -hmm. That was with the idea that it would be impossible for an adversary easily to eliminate them. It would take a massive attack to do that. Our submarines, especially as the number of them dwindles, and the number at sea at any moment is small, become less survivable because one or two bases will have most of them. And unless you've flushed them and have a higher level than normal at sea, you may not have the kind of survivability that you want. And when you couple that with steps by the Russians or the Chinese or others to try to find those at sea, mm -hmm. it becomes even more problematic. And the bombers are sort of uh, a mixed bag because basically if you attack those bomber bases, um, I don't think any of them are on strip alert anymore. And none are kept on airborne alert. So if you attack a handful, I don't even know what the number is, I mean, two or three bomber bases these days, you could conceivably take out those bomber forces. So the strengths of the intercontinental ballistic missiles offset some of the other weaknesses. The submarines, if they're at sea, if they have not been tracked, yeah. if the oceans are not transparent, conceivably are highly survivable but you have fewer and fewer of them. Um, and some of those other considerations may not apply. And theoretically, the idea was that the submarine, so let's say our entire country's in, destroyed by nuclear weapons, that our submarines could still also destroy Russia. Again. That was the idea. That is one of their missions. Right. But it depends critically on whether they can have communications mm. with some surviving 
authority that tells them what to target and, and to fire. So what if the president was dead? Well, there are very elaborate plans mm. to try to ensure that there is a chain of command that would be able, you know, physically, as well as, uh, you know, technologically, to make the decision on what to do and to order that next step, that second strike. Um, and again, one of the reasons why this is such an important conversation to have is that most of us haven't ever thought about any of these issues. Mm -hmm. I think the vast majority of Americans just assume somebody is thinking about them and working on them. And that's true to some extent, but not nearly as much as is needed, especially in the kind of world that we find ourselves in now. Whereas I said earlier, you have adversaries who think about this all the time. Right. And who are deadly serious about it, who think they can actually win a nuclear war. Our stated policy is can't be won, and therefore it must not be fought. But when you're dealing with people who uh, think that it can be under certain circumstances and are beavering away, both in terms of their own forces and in terms of exploiting the vulnerabilities of ours, you're making a terrible mistake if you don't think about it, uh, let alone work hard at trying to deter them. Right. So um, going back to the Reagan years, can you explain Reagan's nuclear strategy? I think his view was that uh, nuclear war should be avoided, prevented, deterred uh, at basically all costs. They thought it would, and he's right, it would be incalculably horrific um, for all involved, I think, not just the, the losers. His philosophy, as it evolved, was initially, we need to restore our strategic deterrent, which had aged badly and which was, at the time, overmatched considerably by the Soviet arsenal, which had grown and grown and grown. So he put in train a strategic force modernization program that we are living off to this day mm -hmm. and basically haven't done much to augment since. He also, uh, starting in March of 20, uh, 1983, began pushing the idea that we should complement our strategic deterrent of the offensive nuclear kind with a deterrent of a different kind, a missile defense-based deterrent. And the idea there was to essentially enhance greatly the uncertainties that an adversary would have about the effects of a first strike. And what was lost in the wild debates that we had during that period was you probably don't have to screw up that calculation very much to have a very significant effect on deterrence. If the adversary is calculating down to the last, you know, kiloton, what it takes to neutralize your second strike capability and suddenly 
into the mix is added that some of your missiles are not going to reach their targets or be effective if they do. That throws off the whole mm -hmm. calculation. And we wound up instead debating the effectiveness of these missile defenses, which were uncertain, to say the least. But that uncertainty, I believed at the time and continue to believe, could work to our advantage. Right. As long as it was clear that at least some of them would work. Right. At least some of the time. Well, at the time it was said it was a crazy idea, but now we see this with the Iron Dome that Israel has and how effective that is. It's just, I mean, You want to talk about crazy ideas? How's this for a crazy <laughs> idea? That you're perfectly secure if we are perfectly vulnerable to nuclear attack. It doesn't make any sense. <laughs> yeah, so the, so the debate at the time in the country was that it wouldn't be fair for us to, to neutralize the Soviet ability to take us out because then so actually um norman bailey was here yesterday he ate lunch and he was on the nsc with reagan at the time and told us the story of Reykjavik, where you i think you were attending that meeting where reagan was negotiating with gorbachev and gorbachev was so freaked out by sdi he said we'll give you every single thing you want you just have to get rid of sdi and reagan said no and he was criticized for that at the time why was that so terrifying to the soviets and why did Reagan feel so strongly about it? I think Ronald Reagan felt a moral responsibility to try to, as he put it, protect the American people rather than avenge them. Yeah. And I think it's also accurate that he had been strongly encouraged, shall we say, by people both within the administration and outside of it, not to give up missile defense, SDI, as it was called, mm -hmm. Strategic Defense Initiative. I think the Soviets felt so strongly about it because it had the potential to completely negate what they had invested in calculable treasure, of which they did not have much, as it turns right. out, uh, building over the years. Uh, the, the whole edifice of mm -hmm. this idea that they were a nuclear superpower resided in the idea and the actual fact that they had this vast arsenal, principally of uh, intercontinental range ballistic missiles. And if they wouldn't necessarily get through a missile defense, um, it was going to be a bigger problem for them than just, you know, the actual impact on strategic deterrence. We weren't interested in going to war with them, for heaven's sakes. But I think their their prestige, their sense of uh, you know the justification that their people have suffered so much for the building up of these you know nuclear capabilities um, would be in in question. And the legitimacy of the operation could, uh, as it turns out, become unsustainable. So. I think a lot of people assume, I know I certainly did that now, obviously, we have missile defense, right? We have the capability to um, deter missiles from Russia or China. Is that accurate? We have a missile defense. Um, whether it is sufficient to make any impact on the Russians or Chinese, I seriously doubt, honestly. Partly because it wasn't designed to do that. It was designed to basically protect us against Iran and North Korea. And it's an open question whether it's actually 
um, sufficiently robust even to do that, but it certainly is too small and the capability is too limited and uncertain to some extent based on the testing to, I think, really interfere with the calculations of, of, the, um, of either Moscow or Beijing. What Reagan had in mind was a very substantial missile defense capability, not a very limited one. And specifically, what he adopted late in his tenure was a constellation of space-based missile defenses, came to be known as brilliant pebbles, take off of smart rocks, um, that would enable a, a really serious capability to intercept uh, even the largest of Soviet attacks at the time. So these would be um, devices in space or in our yeah, atmosphere? They'd be on satellites okay. orbiting the Earth, uh, and they would have sufficient numbers to have full coverage of the Earth. There would be sensors as well as platforms for relatively small interceptors. The idea being to keep the costs down as you try to negate these large Soviet boosters and warheads. Um, that was uh, essentially canceled by the Clinton administration when it came into office. Uh, as the then Secretary of Defense said, um, we've taken the stars out of Star Wars. And from that point forward, uh, we wound up with a very modest and minimal capability. With the exception of what we have built at sea in the Aegis-class ships, um, which is considerably larger than what's on the ground up in Alaska and in California, um, and I think considerably more capable as well. But it's still uh, almost certainly inadequate to stop altogether a Soviet, now Russian, or Chinese nuclear strike. But um, we should be doing a lot more in that space, it seems to me. Why don't you think we are? Are they focusing on other issues or yeah I th as I said I think that the the attitude of the United States government to nuclear warfare and related issues um, basically since 1992 at least has been neglect and while there have been debates about what we should do about modernizing our nuclear forces and the what we should do about our missile defenses over the years, to be sure. I don't think the public has really been engaged in them or thought carefully about them. Their leaders haven't really tried to engage them or talk to them about it even. Um, and as a result, uh, as I said earlier, I think that we just have had the presumption that everything's fine, that we have an effective missile defense, that we have you know, modern, incredible nuclear weapons. We are the world's only superpower and all of that. And uh, I fear it's not true. It's not true, and it's um, it's potentially exceedingly dangerous in a world like this. Do you think other countries are taking note of For how sure. little we're paying attention? For sure. Look, I mean, just to give you one example, um, I mentioned 1992 because that's when we stopped testing nuclear weapons. We haven't 
conducted a single underground realistic, if not full yield, certainly realistic nuclear test since 1992. So since Morgan and I have been alive, we have not done a nuclear test. There you go. <laughs> to put it in perspective. Just to put it in perspective. And what else would you rely on for your safety or your, you know, livelihood that hasn't been tested since you were born? And I think the answer is probably safely no, nothing, zero, null set. And the but, last time we deployed any new warheads was in the late eighties. Yeah. So. Well, that's, and 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 that was with the expectation when they were designed that they would be replaced probably within ten years, fifteen <laughs> at the most. Yikes. And so we have neither validated that they continue to work other than through simulations and calculations nor taken actions to replace them with stuff we know will work not only that but this is really crazy making um, there's stuff in many of these nuclear warheads that is now considered to be carcinogenic and dangerous I mean, they're dangerous if they ever get right. used, obviously, but dangerous just to the people handling them or responsible mm. for assuring their maintenance. What we've done as a result is we've gone in and we've taken some of that stuff out and we've put other stuff in that isn't carcinogenic or, you know, can be replaced, like, you know, vacuum tubes with, you know, <laughs> chips, for heaven's sakes. Um, but we haven't tested the new rig the new configuration and again we've done simulations and that sort of thing and, and scientists are really smart and all that but there's a story that i love yeah to tell i was going to ask you to tell this story a friend of mine who at the time ran the nuclear test site and he told me a story about one of his bright young scientists who came to him this is long after we stopped doing nuclear testing at the nuclear test site or any place and he said uh I really hate experimentation because it interferes with my calculations. In other words, he was so proud of the very sophisticated modeling that he had done and the uh, the powerful computing that you know worked through the calculations uh, to lead to the conclusion that a nuclear weapon was going to perform in such and such a way that when something actually did get tested, and not in the case of a nuclear weapon explosively, but in other you know, smaller scale ways, it not infrequently would show that the calculations were wrong. Now what does that tell you when you're talking about a nuclear weapons complex or enterprise, as I say, that has gone for decades, decades, without having actual testing of what's out there. And I think, to answer your question, Matt, I think that every adversary on this planet, and I'm pretty sure every ally on this planet, is under no illusion that the effect of that kind of really malfeasant approach has been to make our deterrent less capable, less reliable, uh, less certain than it should be. And uh, if that's the case, then we are, I believe, risking 
a preventable nuclear war. So the debate in our Congress currently is whether or not we should invest in our deterrent and, continue and modernize different aspects. While So in the 90s, after the Cold War, I think there was this attitude of the end of history, there's no threat of nuclear war. While in 1997, um, Russia started modernizing its weapons. So in December 2020, Russian Defense Minister Sergei Shogu said that they had modernized 86% of its strategic nuclear forces. They are currently modernizing, they're constantly modernizing both their delivery systems and their weapons, currently between 20 to 25 active strategic nuclear modernization programs. We, as far as I understand, are only talking about modernizing some of our delivery systems, let alone the weapons. And something that you've often talked about is the problem with even having the infrastructure or the scientists or know-how to start modernizing or testing or um, basically bringing our weapons up to speed. Can you explain the infrastructure side of it? So it's not just a matter of, let's say we decided tomorrow we're gonna, this is important, we wanna invest all of our, we'll do whatever it takes to um, modernize our nuclear deterrent. Would we be able to do that? Well, let me just say a word about what the Russians and Chinese have been doing because I think it's really important to have that context. Um, the Russians, as I understand it, have just about completed the most mm -hmm. recent of their modernizations. Um, and yes, I think there are 22 distinct weapon systems, including a number that we have no counterpart for, uh, what they call super weapons, uh, doomsday weapons. Um, these are systems they've invested immensely in, and uh, every facet of them has now been modernized. We're, we're quite concerned um, because we haven't been doing nuclear testing and we don't have full knowledge of what they've been doing, that they may have actually invented and fielded weapon systems with capabilities that would be a surprise. Can you a decisive one. describe one of these super weapons? Well, the super weapons are one thing. The the special effects weapons would be another thing. But the super weapons are things like a um, an unmanned torpedo uh, that can go intercontinental ranges with a hundred megaton warhead, which would essentially devastate much of the coast of the United States where it landed um, and make it uninhabitable for. Millennia. What's the what was Hiroshima compared to 100? 25 kilotons. 100 megatons. 100 megatons. Wow. A lot bigger bang. Um, and there's and there's no use for this kind of weapon mm -hmm. other than just terrifying, destructive power. Uh, Putin is also very proud of a nuclear-powered cruise missile that has had a series of mishaps, um, leaking radiation and causing all kinds of other difficulties. Um, again, these are weapons that are, um, I think, being pursued um, for psychological effect as much as anything. But it bespeaks a commitment to them. And, and my point is, because they have completed their nuclear modernization program, they are now embarking on the next generation. And I don't know whether it'll be 22 or whether it'll be more or whether it'll be less, but they're ongoing because they have an active infrastructure. They have um, highly skilled 
specialists working in all these fields with a lot of experience, including, we believe, in low-yield nuclear tests that are undetectable by us, but nonetheless inform their modernization and may give some of these weapons special effects. It may be, you know, um, neutron techniques that can be used in battle spaces that are like very confined without blowing everything to kingdom come, but just you know, suppressing the enemy. Or they may have weapons for anti-missile purposes, for example, uh, and the like. But we don't really know because we don't uh, know what they're doing and we don't have experiments to try to simulate what we think they might be up to. The Chinese, for their part, have engaged in a covert nuclear buildup that is simply stunning. And I say that even before these silos have been discovered in two different places now in China, a hundred or so apiece, um, the Chinese were detected a few years back by a, another former colleague of mine, uh, Phil Carber, working with graduate students and undergraduate students at Georgetown. Uh, and they figured out that the Chinese had built some three thousand miles of hardened underground tunnels to conceal, we have to assume, among other things, mobile missiles, maybe road-based, maybe rail-based. Because we normally would see them with satellites and whatnot being transported? Well, if they were above ground, you might. Right. Um, but the Chinese are astute about mm-hmm. <laughs> when our satellites are overhead and um, have gone to lengths to conceal what they're up to. Hence, we are endlessly told by the arms control community in this country, and even some in the intelligence community, that the Chinese only have two to three hundred nuclear weapons. It is unimaginable that a country would go to the lengths of building three thousand miles of nuclear tunnels to conceal two to three hundred nuclear warheads. It just didn't happen. So how many they actually have, we can only guess how many they will have if these silos are filled, um, will exceed the number of missiles that we have, I think it's fair to say, certainly the number of warheads that we have, at least if you factor in just the ones that are actually deployed, which I think, again, are the only ones that count. But you put all this together, and especially given the fact that the Russians and Chinese are actually exercising jointly simulated nuclear attacks against the United States, this is a very serious world of hurt we're in. And we ignore the need credibly to deter us at our extreme peril. And you ask the question, so how long would it take us to do something if we actually got serious about this? It would take many years is the simple truth of the matter. We might be able to do a nuclear test, a fairly crude one and not terribly well monitored, um, not from a safety point of view, but in terms of the, the, the various, you know, highly sensitive instrumentation you want to make sure you really understand what's happened to the weapon as it's been detonated, if it goes off. Um, but, you know, the industrial base to support our nuclear deterrent is decrepit and obsolete. And, uh, you know, you had a question about pits. 
pits are the core of a thermonuclear weapon. Without them, they don't work. And we need to modernize, I think, basically all of them in our inventory. We should be replacing these nuclear weapons, for that matter, rather than just trying to keep them going. But I see no evidence at the moment of anybody in government being serious about the business of nuclear deterrence. And I say that with all due respect to uniformed personnel, with respect to people who are uh, civilian officials in the Defense Department or the Energy Department, and most especially people in the Congress. Uh, John Kyle was a guy who was very serious about this, and he left town five or six years ago now, I think, maybe four. Um, and in his absence, uh, there's no Scoop Jackson, that's for sure, and uh, not even a John Kyle. And as a result, um, to the people listening to this and saying, well, you know, this, is, this makes my head hurt. This is, this is really horrible. Can't we talk about something else? <laughs> can't, we, can't we just change the subject? Uh, let's move along or, or pretend this isn't really happening to us. I would simply say that um, I think it was Trotsky who was the expression, you may not be interested in war, but war is interested in you. If we are not serious about the business of nuclear deterrence, our adversaries know that and I believe are increasingly positioning themselves to take advantage of it. And that could mean nuclear war, that could mean simply that we are blackmailed into doing what they will, uh, or, you know, uh, allies of ours are destroyed or our forces overseas are attacked and we're held hostage by the prospect that the same might happen to us. I don't know, but what I do know is that Vladimir Putin personally presides over strategic nuclear warfare simulations, with the target, of course, being this country. Almost every year. Uh, if not more than once. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's his thing. Yeah. And we have an expression in the United States military, in the Army in particular, that train as you intend to fight. That kind of hands-on experience, I believe, is probably inducing him to think he could actually use nuclear weapons decisively at some point against us. And that danger probably is intensified to the extent he has confidence that the Chinese would be alongside him in doing it. Thank you for listening to today's show. Not Cleared is a project of the Center for Security Policy. We want to hear from you, so please email us at questions at notcleared.org so we can get in touch with you.